welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. Another Knock On Podcast, and we're rolling. I've got friends watching, and yeah, this podcast, we're going to, you guys have a ton of awesome questions. Made a little post last night um, asking you all to send me your questions, and I literally just scrolled through and put a heart next to the ones that um, were subjects that I thought would be good for us to dive into. And we're going to do that. And then, uh, but before I do, I want to make sure I've got a couple shout outs here I want to make. Um, so, first shout out is going to be to RJ Clockmaker. Uh, made a post last night that he got his first 300 round. Congrats, dude. Big accomplishment. Um, that's all you got to do. You just break, break into that first 300. And once you've done that, they'll they'll just you'll get you'll get bored of 300 papers what you'll do is um you'll just you'll be able to shoot the same the same vegas face for a couple weeks because you're just going to shoot in the same hole all the time and then eventually you'll just give your 300s to some lucky kid and i don't know me and bronco and brad iverson all the followers will be calling you for advice and all that good stuff that's that's what's going to happen 337 designs watching right now so we've got some people from around the world um next shout out is going to be to steve miller um not from the steve miller band but uh steve your buddy sent us an email uh one of your buddies from the archery club sent us um a pretty good email telling us about how faithful of a follow you are and uh, how much you like sharing everything that we're doing and uh, talk good about us. And he thought you deserved a shout out. So Steve Miller, thanks, dude. Appreciate all the support. And uh, yeah, I can't say enough about it. Um, the next shout out is going to be going to Travis Gross. Uh, Travis sent me a picture of an awesome billy goat that he shot and he had one of the releases in the picture and was super excited he got like a once in a lifetime draw um i think it was there in utah if i remember right which is i'm pretty familiar with that area um i did a billy goat hunt up there on the well kind of north of ogden um up on that top end there at about ten thousand feet so if you've ever watched one of the original dd bow hunting dvds you'll see that we uh did a billy goat hunt up there at about ten thousand feet and did a lot of it on a single track dirt bike track which was kind of fun um got up there and i got altitude sickness and threw up all over the place and we shot a billy and packed them off so it was pretty cool i'm enjoying some coffee right now um well i can't talk about it yet but I'm a coffee nut. You all know that. So had a pretty cool opportunity. I think we're going to end up uh, getting a, a coffee label going here, a white label 
blend of our own friends, which will be super cool. And uh, I'll tell you more about that when I can. But I'm all, I feel American today. Like I saw the the idiots in um, here at a local high school. Some band members walked off during the national anthem and made national news. So um, my protest is I have a Team USA hat and a freaking big USA sweatshirt. So take that, suckers. Every time you protest, I'm going to wear a flag around town and show it to everybody and tell everyone how cool it is. So that's that's my re- my retaliation. So if you decide to walk off in a national anthem again, I'm going to do another podcast and tell a half million people what's up. America's up. That's what's up. Got some weirdos out there being whiners. Um, all right, so let's jump into some of these questions. And man, I can't. Oh. I'm just telling you, if you're a Hoyt, I know there's people that are Matthews and Botech and PSE and all those other companies. I know that you're all out there and there's new bows coming from them, but the new Hoyts are going to be, you guys are going to be jacked. Super cool new system. Uh, it's really good. Really cool. So that's coming really, really soon as well. And uh, I'll be able to, I'm going to, I've actually got, um, I've actually got a. We're, I'm going to be working on a a bow build that I'll launch. Um, a bow review and a bow build that I'll launch as soon as those things are out and I'm able to do it, um, which is going to be really cool. And I guess one thing I do talk. You know, I like to stay open minded about all companies, and I think all of you know that. Um, spend a lot of time with with um, some of the guys at Bowtech. Um, last year and then I also spent um, quite a bit of time with um, some of the engineers at Matthews and kind of have an open connection there too um, so if there is ever any like information that they want relayed out to their followers they know that they can always count on me for that um, so I do want to make sure you all know that um, I'm parcel to Hoyt and that's me um, and my personal things but uh, yeah that's kind of where it's at and um so, and I, I am officially, I am officially back with Hoyt. If everyone is curious on that, some people were questioning why I wasn't showing pictures with bows in there. They didn't know if I was going to be going to other companies, but no, um, kind of my actual role is, um, actually a, more of a, a technical advisor to, um, the R and D team, some of the engineers. And that's really a big reason why, um, why I get equipment early is because they want someone that, that has background in manufacturing and so forth, which I do. Um, and I think Hoyt might actually officially announce that. I think it's to the point where they just need to kind of tell people some of the stuff that I do for them and go from there. But I'm not, uh, biased. I'm open-minded and in my archery room over there, I've got, I've got new bows from four companies, so I shoot them all and give them feedback openly. Um, but out of you know, obviously respect for a company I've been with for almost a decade now. Um, no different than when I was with Matthews for a decade. Um, you know, I keep my opinions quiet, and I'll tell you the things that I like from my personal setup, 
and I'll tell you things that'll help you with your setups, but um, I just don't think it's fair to be doing total bow reviews. So that's my disclaimer. I don't know why I went on that rant, but I did. Um, all right, first question here is from, I think it's, I don't know, you guys' names. I think it's Brandon Schrader. <laughs> that might totally be the worst way to say it. But anyway, he's saying, um, what in a bow design gives it torsional stability? So what he's asking specifically about is certain bows don't have a lot of um, torsional stability, meaning um, when you pull them back to full draw, they have a lot of torque in the system. So, um, and you can identify this pretty easy um, a couple different ways. One is uh, you can just look at how far your pins have to be outside of your arrow shaft. So, if you've got an arrow shaft running right down the center of your riser like this, and your pins are having to sit an inch to the left of that arrow shaft, what's that tell? What that's telling you is as you draw the bow back, and that bow flexes and bends, the pins will then come over center of the arrow. So that's showing you how much flex that riser has, and what causes that is. Your cables, as they slide back on the bow, or as you draw the bow, the cables are pushing in because there's more and more pressure. You're transferring pressure from your string. I think people have seen it where I pull my bow back, and you can see how limber a string is at full draw, and that's because there's so much load transferred into the cables. And because there's more load into the cables, your cables are wanting to be right down the center of that riser. They're wanting to run down the center of the cams. But because we can't shoot through our cables, we are pulling them to the side. And when we pull them to the side like that, that extra pressure on the side of the riser is what's wanting to twist it. It's wanting to turn it. So some bows have more... Uh, well, some bows, I shouldn't say they have more tension in the cables because that could that's not always true depends on the system and how the limbs are bent and you know how much how forward you pull the cables but some systems because of the riser design and the bulkiness of the riser and the shape of the riser they can handle more of that so if you look at like say a um, a Hoyt Prevail with a shoot through riser or even some of the newer Bowtex the PSEs a lot of people are going through a shoot through riser for their target bows those target bows are going to have a lot a lot better alignment because that inner bridge is stiffening that setup to where it's not twisting as much and that's why a carbon riser like on the new bows uh, that Hoyt's going to be revealing and um, also you know the pre-existing carbon risers carbon has um, a very high torsional stability rating so um, it doesn't have near the flex as compared to the same model in an aluminum um, now there's been bows in the past that have had a lot of a lot of torsional instability and another way that you can check that and one way that I've always told people if you really want to know how much a bow is flexing just put a 30 inch stabilizer on the front of it 
if you screw a 30 inch stabilizer on your bow and you look at where the tip of that stabilizer is sitting when the bow is at rest, you can look over the top of it. Hopefully if your stabilizer bushing is square to the riser, the stabilizer will track all the way down straight down the riser. But then as you draw back, look at what happens with that stabilizer. If it all of a sudden swings way out to where it's pointing a different direction, like if it starts at 12 o'clock and now all of a sudden it's pointing at, you know, at 12.30 or 1 o'clock, well, that's got some torque. I've seen bows, um, I've seen very high-end bows, um, which I think companies start to identify the tuning issues once they're in manufacturing, they're out. Bows that just kind of go away altogether. I've seen bows, and I won't mention brands, to where you can put a 30-inch stabilizer on there, draw them back, and I've seen the stabilizer, I can see it with my eye on the right side of the riser. It's flexing so much. And obviously that isn't a riser design or um, a cam and cable system that you would really prefer because what happens is when it's flexing that much all the time, any variation you have in your front hand is going to magnify that torque and that twist. So if you want to know what's the best for torsional stability, you can just look at how bows are lining up, where your pins are sitting over your arrows. Your pins will normally sit on the most normal setups. It's very rare that they're perfectly down the center. I've had, um, I've definitely had some elite risers, um, meaning like the Hoyt Elite risers, like a Pro Elite or an old, you know Vantage Elite, something like that where my pin is right down the top of my arrow shaft, top of my stabilizer, like everything's in a perfect line. But that's with a tech riser. That's why Hoyt has the tech riser where the riser arcs back behind and it helps st- it helps stabilize that cable rod that comes back. It's giving support in the center of that cable rod. That tech design adds a lot of strength. It's just like the truss on a bridge. If you look at how a bridge is made and where it needs to support weight, it has that truss that comes over the top, just like your roof does. And if you look at a Hoyt riser, a Hoyt riser is made like a house truss that is literally stood straight up. So the pressure that is pushing on the back of that bow has strength that a lot of companies don't have. That's why that's patented. Now the shoot-through riser, that that truss that goes over the outside of the shoot-through window, that adds an incredible amount of strength too. So both of those things combined together add a lot. Now that's why you look at the some of the Hoyt risers, they have a lot more that they're able to cut out within the riser. So in other words, if you turn um, one of the carbon risers sideways, you know, there's not a whole lot in the middle of everything. Whereas like with the Matthews, with like their honeycomb design, they're, they have a lot more gridding and structure work going on within the length of that riser. And that's just because they don't have that tech design. So they're bringing in strength in a different manner. So that's really um, kind of what affects all that and obviously the cable system so certain systems have a lot of natural torsional torque and that's why like some of the companies recently have had to 
come out with cable rods that bend and flex so that the cables can come closer to the center of the system and you can tell if they, if they didn't do that like for example if you if you tightened that bendable rod to the side and made it stay stiff to where the cables totally stayed on one side during the whole draw cycle then that bow would twist like a wet taco shell so um yeah that's it that's torsional stability and that's what you should look for um next question here is from kevin.joe well it's kevin.j.o he's saying what factors contribute to broadhead quality and what should i look out for as a consumer that's a super good question because you know like i've said many times not all broadheads are made the same not all broadheads have there's certain ones that just shatter um well i'm just gonna say like i talked about in the past there's a broadhead that that flew good and cut good and was going to penetrate good um technically it had a cool you know when you look at it you think that thing is going to cut immediately it's going to have incredible penetration um there's not going to be opening blades there's not going to be any drag you know it looked like a pretty solid design but when it got shot into a solid bone mass by a buddy of mine the thing just absolutely shattered apart and busted apart so you know that's where um, that's where things start to get a little bit tricky. Is what do you look out for? Well, you know, honestly, like I've said in the past, with with me and my broadheads, I've learned over the years that um, you kind of want to have something like if you're shooting something and you see your blades slightly bend when you hit things hard. Bending is not a bad thing. Bending means the blade is still there. It's just reshapes itself or recontours itself so that it can pass through or wrap around bone as it's impacting it. I mean, depending on your angle, it's highly unlikely that you're going to zip through something without contacting ribs. And I know that you you definitely want to be able to bust through ribs, but there's a lot that factors into that and it's just not always going to happen that way. Things that I look out for are, you know, aluminum ferrules that are very long uh, aren't necessarily always the best idea. Um, I don't personally like shooting broadheads that have the little bitty blades on the tip um, because a lot of times that very front tip, and, and I need to rephrase that, I'm talking about broadheads that actually have a small little razor blade that they insert into the tip and screw it on um i like broadheads like i don't know what the name of the broadheads are like the adam green tree shoots but that's like a perfectly it's almost like a zwicky design it's it's just a super one single piece all the way through um and those are obviously going to be super um solid in how they you know, I guess for impact, right? They're going to be good. Um, now, broadheads that have little blades that insert into the tip and have a screw that goes in there, a couple things. One, if that's not put on there straight, then when you go to spin it, it's going to wobble really bad because, you know, you have another alignment point and having a perfectly straight tip is 
is important too. And the other thing is, if you're ever going to crush something um, or destroy something um, by hitting something hard, it's going to be on the tip of that broadhead. So if you have a thin cutting blade that's inserted in on the very tip, the chances are you're going to shatter that thing and round it off. Yeah, it's definitely going to cut hide sooner, and if it doesn't contact any bone, it'll cut through really nice. But... You know, that's why I really like the sharpness and the point that they've put like on the tripan um, because that thing really punctures in the hide. And, you know, because it the bl- because the tip is so long, it is going to penetrate a little bit better. Like it's going to drill in, so to speak, better as it goes. But because it's so long and pointy like that, if you hit something like, say, a solid knuckle, it might round that tip just because of that design, but that would happen with a lot of heads, and in some heads it would just shatter it off. So I like I like that. I also like a broadhead. If you take a broadhead out of a package and you put it in your arrow and screw it on, make sure you actually get several rotations before that arrow is hunkering down into that arrow. I've seen some designs on some arrows that, or some broadheads where the ferrules are so short that you put them in there and by the time you go to turn them on your arrow, you only get like one rotation and it's already tight. Um, you're going to just end up breaking that out in that aspect. The next thing is going to be uh, blade sharpness. Um, honestly, there's a lot of There's a lot of companies that are pretty good. One company that I was, I'll just tell you, it's not very common that I would just call it out, but I was pretty, pretty disappointed. Um, A couple years ago when the Toxic Broadheads first came out, I watched their video that where they were shooting through jugs and you were seeing the difference in how fast the fluid was coming out of the jugs and they were relating that to blood and blood trails. Um, and I actually still have the broadhead in the other room. Um, I made a shot on a whitetail, and I'm talking like money, perfect shot. And that deer ran out with it. Pretty what happened was it pretty much cored a hole through the deer, almost like a. It looked similar to like when you would shoot a 50 cal like muzzleloader ball slug. It knocked a hole through it, but it just didn't cut and it didn't hemorrhage. What happened was because of the design of that toxic where it's curled blades, all it did when it went through is just grabbed a whole bunch of meat and hide and hair. And that as it went through, it looks, according to the arrow, it looks like that was never really flushing through the broadhead and cutting as it passed. All it did was just literally jammed a big meatball on the end of the arrow and forced it through the animal the animal ran out there and um in my opinion took way too long to go down for the shot that was made on it and i was actually um wasn't really happy at the performance so you know from that aspect i wasn't happy um so I can tell you that there's some blades out there that are just sharper than all get out. The tripans are stupid sharp. Um, The blood trail that I've had with Muzzy Trocars have been excellent. If you put the right edge on a G5, um, like the new Montex, I've seen great blood trails with them. 
Ramcats are um, have I've that that blade on those are are crazy too. Uh, you better watch out for those. Um, I've had a lot of buddies that have done good with Grim Reapers. Um, I personally am big into. I really like. I've seen the process that Rage does for their blades, and their blades are stupid sharp. Um, and now that they've got control of the muzzy blades too, um, the muzzy blades on, you know, especially like a trocar design are ridiculously sharp. So, um, I guess look for a head, um, you know, and actually, uh, Peterson's bow hunting has been doing some pretty good, um, broadhead reviews, just showing true character flight characteristics and strength characteristics of different broadheads. Um, so maybe take a look at that too, but I've kind of mentioned my favorites, even some, some of them are ones that I don't particularly shoot, but I have shot. Um, and I've, you know, Sharon or Harry have shot too, even at lower poundage, uh, and work really well. Um, let's see. Next question here are, and the other thing too, on broadheads, like I talked about on the tip, make sure that when you screw broadheads on and you spin them, they spin good. If you've got ones that aren't square and don't line up square on the shaft and they have a little chime in them, um, those the, that's not good. And that's one thing that impresses me about the tripans is for a long point like it has, when those things spin, it'll damn near drill a hole through your finger if you don't watch it. So um, that's kind of the things that I really like about those. Um, so next question here is from Outback X 79 He's saying, shooting in the rain. Last Sunday, I had an entire tournament under constant rain and shifting winds. Um, what setup do you recommend and what's your strategy? So there's a couple things there. Um, rain is difficult uh, mainly because uh, changes come from two different things. Um, one change is going to come from drag and in the form of drag, there's a couple different things to talk about there. One would be drag of you know we talked about cable rods a little while ago so the drag of your cable rod when it's wet and your cable slide is chattering on that rod as it goes down because it's hopping on that water that causes drag and it's going to slow your bow down the other thing is absorption into the string so when water sucks into your string like a sponge um, you're you're literally imagine taking um, a piece of string and you know it it doesn't weigh much and then you dip it in water and let it soak the water up and pull it up you can it weighs a lot more so weight reduces speed so you have a bow that's why a lot of people start to hit low when they're in heavy rainfall because their strings depending on their string material and that's why I'm a big advocate of certain types of materials in strings um, mainly because some strings and some material, some things that you actually apply to your strings help reduce that. So obviously wax helps shit, you know, it doesn't, it repels the water. So if there's good wax in your string, then that means there's not water absorbing into the string. So that's the downside. If you have a string that's fairly dry, like some people really like to strip a lot of the wax out of their string to get the extra speed. But the problem is once you start to shoot in the rain, that's that string now, 
is kind of set up to suck up that water and that'll end up uh, giving you problems. So with that said, if you know rain's coming, it's almost worth putting a good little coat of wax on your string. If you see the forecast, you know there's rain, put some wax in that string, even on the serving areas, and then rub it in really good with a piece of leather. And then wipe off the excess off the outer uh, off the outer side. Don't have wax gobbing off your thing. And then um, make sure that you go out and shoot your bow. Because if you've had a string that's really dry and you got all your sight marks with a really dry string, and then you finally wax it really well, then what you may find is. Um, it may shoot just a little bit different because you may have a little bit slower speeds, um, a few feet per second, but not near as much as if you get it completely saturated with rain. Um, the other thing too is just looking at your forecast and doing a couple things as precaution. One, um, having a type of cover or bag just to set over your bow is really helpful. Um, between shots, don't leave your bow sitting out in the rain. Try to cover it. Um, also, when you get, if it does get wet and you get back to your hotel, take your bow, dry it off as much as you can, shake it, dry it off as much as you can. And I always just go over and I, you know, I won't crank the heat high in the room, but I'll just make sure the air is going and I'll set my bow right over um, the vent so that there's just constant air blowing on it or even if you have a fan just put your fan on it and just let normal air blowing on it help dry that thing off um, be important for you um, when it comes to what to take in the field a bow cover they do make like little rain coats so to speak for your bow I know Lancaster has them um, those work really well if you're at a tournament just to keep your gear covered i always just had an extra garbage bag with me and just take a hefty sack throw a big hefty sack over my bow um that works really well um the other thing is like you're probably going to have a rain jacket on i assume so um what i always do is like in my rain jackets i'll have a ziploc bag that'll be folded up i've got a ziploc here i'm showing people that are watching live I'll have a Ziploc folded up and it'll be inside of my inner pocket on my shooting rain gear. Inside of that is going to be um, about a one foot piece of chamois cloth. You can go to, um, to Walmart and buy a piece, a piece of chamois from like the auto section. Or if you go to As Seen on TV, you might be able to find like a ShamWow. I bought a couple of them years ago and I'm still using them. Um, they work really good. I'll just take a one foot piece of that. I'll fold that up, keep it in my baggie that's on the inside. Um, also, uh, um, you could take a compression sleeve with you. Um, or even if you have like an old tight sock, you can slide that over your shooting arm too, just to keep your shooting arm um, a little bit more compressed with your rain jacket so you're not hitting your sleeve. And the reason I have that inside of a bag is because my extra release or my extra releases or releases I'm not using, I always will put them inside of that Ziploc bag and keep them in my pocket. Um, 
you know, I might let one get super wet for several ends and then, or maybe the first half, but then that second day I want to shoot a new dry release. Um, and then one thing that's valuable is, you know, taking your release aid too and making sure that thing gets dried off because, um, if you have a handheld release aid that has really good parts and super tight, uh, tolerances, if you start to get rust um, in there because you know it gets super wet on the inside, you never dry it out properly. You know that'll you'll start to feel where the rusty parts start to grind on one another, and it's just not going to be near as crisp. So learning how to open that release up and dry that off with a Q-tip, or just even opening it up and just blowing an air dryer on it and drying it off really well. Um, can be super beneficial. Um, so hopefully that helps you out, man. Appreciate it. Um, next question here is from Halon8569 says, I love taking my kids hunting. They're six and three. Um, so you can imagine their attention span isn't the greatest, but I still love it. What's your favorite hunting memory with your family? Um, yeah, there's so many. That's the one thing I feel blessed about is the fact that we we have always had knock on tv and since harry's first ever bow hunt um, or even his first time with me we have captured on film because they were always there so um, i still think probably my most memorable hunt with um with harry was when he shot that alligator when he was 10 um, shot an alligator that we had called out of the water um, and he shot it with um it wasn't a silver back then. He shot it with an evolution release. Um, but yeah, imagine being 10 years old. We literally had a caller called an alligator up out of the channel and literally was coming across like a big freaking dinosaur looking thing just coming to this call. And Harry pulled back while he was behind a bush. And it kind of, as it's walking across this levee, he just put his pin right on the heart. And just, I told him, I just said, just keep the pin behind the shoulder, follow him and pull. And he just followed as he, as he was walking and just kept pulling, pulling, pulling. And the shot broke and just perfect shot right into the back of the shoulder, shot it in the heart. Um, and then it jumped off into this, into this channel. And it, it, what happens is when you shoot them in the body, when they're out of the water, once they go down, they start to fill up with water. So then they come back up to the surface again And when it came back up to the surface, I told him, I said, put one more right in that thing's brain, which is pretty much the little temple that's behind its eyeball. And he's like, where at? And I said, that hole right behind its eye. And I'll be darned if he didn't. He said, how far? And I told him like 22 or 23. And he he moved his sight, drew back. I heard that safety come off. And I just saw him pulling that elbow around, pulling that elbow around. And then he just stuff that second arrow right into that temple it was awesome so that's probably my best um best one with harry my best one with sharon there's a lot a lot of different ones she was my camera person for years before she ever hunted and so we had a lot of memories just with her on some hunts that i was on um a lot of people don't know that but yeah she put in a lot of due diligence behind me with a camera and I don't know, I think probably her first whitetail still really sticks out to me. It was, she was, she put in a lot of effort to 
She really wanted to shoot a good whitetail, a good buck for her first buck, a mature deer. And I, I think it was just, oh, just over 700 hours is how long she had put in. I think it was three full years that she had hunted whitetails before, um, before we made her first shot. And she, uh, yeah, she smoked that buck that we called half rack and it was, uh, just over the 700th hour that she had put in a whitetail tree or blind. She shot it out of a redneck. She actually shot it out of the bale blind setup that I posted a picture on on my Instagram the other day, um, which was a four bale. I take four bales, and I'll stack those four bales around a deck that I make, which is a six-by-six platform on four-foot legs. So I'll take that deck... And then I'll put a, a redneck bale blind on top. I'll screw it into the wood deck. And then I'll take real round bales and put four of them around. So it looks like a round bale pyramid. And you're just sitting right in the top. And that's what Sharon shot her first buck on. It, he came in and never even looked at the blind. So he was there over, He was there over, I think, over 20 minutes under 20 yards. Uh, and I could see him out my window, but he wasn't in her window yet. And then finally she was able to make a shot. Okay, next uh, question here is from, let's see. It looks like Coven Davidson 11 is asking, your optimal practice session, i.e. length of your session and quality over quantity, what are you looking for? So, uh, yeah, when it comes to practice, my practices vary a lot, um, especially now because I'm just I'm just trying to be constant in practicing all the time. I like to like I spend a lot of time checking marks. Um, sometimes if I go out and I'm shooting and maybe I'm not shooting really well, like say I've got a few arrows spraying around, I'll just sit there and just shoot at one distance and really just try to find my stroke. Um, but I just really believe in cycling your practice and I do the same thing when it comes to like my fitness and my weight. Like there's times a year where there's times a year where you guys see me ride my bike all the time. Then there's times a year where I'm just, you know, like I, lately I've been just loading this ruck pack up and just going on a full hour ruck with heavy weight on my back. Um, last week for whatever reason, um, just because I was... I'm doing a lot of my lifting now at Harry's College. Um, part of part of my deal with he had a couple schools that he was looking at. So this school that he's going to is a school that's close by, and we knew that he was going there because that's where he wanted to go. But um, part of the bargain I made with the coach is that I would convince Harry to go there as long as he gave me. Um, all access to the athletic department and facilities <laughs> and so they did so now I'm um, I'm pretty much either on a on the college football field or in the weight room with the football players every day so I'm I'm like loving life again um, so yeah I've been I did some some sprints and some interval sprints and stuff on the track um, I've really been changing up I did kettlebells a lot um, before, and now I'm switching up to kind of just doing some more like almost like I'm really debating getting into CrossFit. I've been 
I've been contemplating this move. I'm kind of afraid to get into something too deep because I might end up wigging out and getting into it. Um, so I'm kind of, it's a, I'm, I'm doing some CrossFit movements, um, but I'm not doing it in the CrossFit class, but it's mainly cause I have like my, my own little, uh, personal gym there. But the point of all that is just saying I have variation. I don't, you know, I don't want a diet of the same shooting routine all the time. That's why when it's, I love spending one or two months shooting indoor rounds and shooting Vegas rounds. And then all of a sudden the next thing you'll see is I've, you'll see me just practicing on three D's. The next time you'll see me just shooting an elk at a hundred yards. And that's all I do is just, you know, sit out there and just love just making hundred yard shots on my elk target. And then the next time you'll look out there and there'll be feet of field stuff. And I'm working on unmarked rounds and practicing field. Um, but the main thing is, you know, if I'm shooting good, I shoot. If I'm not shooting good, then I try to just say, okay, let's muster up one good group, muster up, th- you know, let's just three more good shots. I'll try to, you know, do that. And then I'll, you know, kind of walk off and be content. Um, there's, there's days where I just don't shoot good. There's days where I do. Um, regardless, those days, um, you kind of just have to play it by ear. So some days, if I'm shooting good, there's been days where, um, like last year, I think there were a few days indoor where I think I shot maybe seven full hours straight. Um, there's, you know, there's been, there's actually been a few days when I was first working on this bow. Um, I think I shot six or seven hours, um, with this new Hoyt, um, mainly cause they said, you know, we really want to want you to check a few things. They were showing me a few things they wanted checked. Um, So, you know, I just kind of shoot until my fingers get bloody. My calluses are kind of, my shooting calluses, you can tell from where my hands are bent, like showing people. These will start to bleed. Mainly, mainly my index finger will start to bleed. Normally when that happens, that's kind of when I have to call it quits. Um, But that's also another reason why um, like with some of my, my target bows, I shoot lower poundage. Um, you know, I'll shoot in the mid fifties or I'll shoot 60 pounds. And even on my hunting bows, there's bows that I'll, you know, a lot of times I'll have two hunting bows. I'll have one bow. That's one that I just get a lot of reps with when I just want to shoot and it's right at 70 pounds. And then I'll always have one heavy one. Like there's times where, you know, you'll see me go and I'll take an 80 pound bow but that's not a bow that I'm practicing with all the time. And the main thing is just because of wear and tear. So if you're someone trying to shoot 80 pounds and you're not capable of really maintaining that weight, then obviously your practice sessions are going to be limited to quality um, because you're trying to shoot too much weight. And that's a big reason why, like I've always told Sharon and Harry, listen, don't worry about how much weight you shoot. Sharon shoots about right now. She's shooting about, 37 pounds is what she's shooting um, just because she's not able to shoot as much as she did when we didn't have you know knock on archery in in the store Um, so she's shooting three or four pounds less than she did um, a year and a half two years ago when the store wasn't so crazy thanks to all of you Um, so um, and then Harry, you know, Harry shoots, even though he's a lot stronger now than what he was when he was 15 and 16 and hunting a lot, 
you know, he, he hunted and shot a lot with me before he got deep into sports. And, you know, with, with him, I just told him, just keep shooting the weight that you're at. You know, even though he could probably easily shoot 50 or 55 pounds now, he's still shooting about 42 pounds. And it's mainly because when he comes home and he does want to shoot, he's able to go out there and shoot and not struggle to pull his bow back. And I think that's something that's important for everybody out there. Um, let's see here. I'm going to jump into this question. Um, Jazz Biker is asking how to hold steadier. Um, saying I can handle pin float, but the occasional big bob, <laughs> that sucks. Um, yeah, I hate that too. Any of the the bobbles, those those are, you know, you start to wonder, am I, am I getting like some kind of a weird twitch? <laughs> am I going to have that? Um, so yeah, pin float is, it varies from person to person, honestly. Um, I don't feel like I hold as steady as some people that I've watched. You know, I've shot with, you know, I grew up going to events and training and rooming with people that shoot to where, you know, people tell me I hold steady. I've shot with people that I can tell you hold way steadier. Um, but group wise, the groups for me, if I'm not steady and I'm pulling through my groups, correct themselves when I'm, when I'm trying to aim and I have that float, that's when things kind of start to go down the toilet. So the things that you can do to minimize that are obviously, um, you know, your stabilizer configuration, but you have to be careful on that because what what so many people are doing is because they just want their pin to sit still, they're putting so much weight on the end of that stabilizer that they're just not able to keep that front shoulder down and forward and just raise the bow up. They end up having to compress that back or lean back to hold the weight and a good way to do that you know i do it in the weight room um i actually have a routine that i've done and i think i've posted it before um with a kettlebell where i take a kettlebell i'll swing it out and i'll literally as i swing it forward it flips up onto the top of my arm and i'll hold that kettlebell straight out with my front shoulder make sure that the scap is down the front you know you don't want your scapula riding high like this you're trying to hold that scapula down you're flexing those lats holding that down you'll flip it up and you'll hold it and you hold it for 10 or 15 seconds and then you bend your elbow in keeping your scap down you'll turn it out and hold it out and what you'll find is there's only so much weight that you're able to do that with and maintain that scap being down without having to lean back. And that's pretty much that's the weight that you can manage. If you take your bow and if you just grab your bow from the floor and if you can't stand there and just raise that bow straight up to your side while maintaining that front scapula and shoulder down and forward. If you can't do that, then it's simply too much weight for you. And what happens is when you start to pull back, you end up having to compress the front shoulder, drive it back, or hitch your hip. And as soon as you're hitching your hip, um, which is an easy thing to do, then you're automatically set up for improper form. So you need to 
try to find a stabilizer weight and set up. I personally find that if I keep weight closer to my hand, it's better. Because the other thing too is like that kettlebell routine I was just talking about. Imagine, do you know, maybe you can do that. Say you can do it with, with a 8 kg uh, kettlebell. Say maybe you can do it with a 10. So now think of can you do that same weight if your arm was twice as long because essentially if you have a long stabilizer that weight is even further away from your center mass right so it's not like people are stacking that much weight close to their hand which i'm a firm believer of i think keeping the weight closer to your hand means keeping weight closer to your body where the stable where your stabilization is the problem with having so much weight out in the front is um, an object in motion remains in motion. So if you talk, or like earlier, we talked about torsional stability. So imagine having a bow that <clears throat> is fairly weak, and now you've got a ton of weight 30 inches out in front of it, and that weight is swaying. And your whole bow, especially depending on the torsional stability, will sway as well and what happens is your string is being held in one place and as the stabilizer sways the string and the stabilizer sway against one another and it's not a good thing to have so i like keeping weight close to center um actually like bailey smith kind of chimed in on this um question from jazz biker and says yeah definitely want to hear about that so What's what was cool um, about you know like Matthews back in the day was you know when the um, harmonic dampers first came out, you know I found I kept telling Matt, hey, these work awesome, but I really want some super heavy ones so that I could load them up. And actually, back when I shot, um, I actually had um, trying to I had. I'm trying to think what it was made of. I don't know if we made them out of stainless or titanium, uh, or not titanium. I might have made them out of tungsten, but I actually had lower limb pockets that they made me out of um, tungsten and also brass, and I would mount the, and then I would anodize them um, or paint them so people didn't see. But my original like apexes and stuff. They had a super heavy limb pocket just on the bottom, and then on my harmonic dampers, I would put the tungsten um, or the stainless or the brass in the bottom harmonic dampers, so I would have a lot of extra weight loaded behind my hand and closer to my center mass, so that really helped me um, hold steady. The other thing, too, is going to be your draw length, so your draw length really impacts how you hold your bow when it comes to steadiness. Um, if your draw length is too long, you're going to be overextended. Elbow is going to be down. You're almost probably going to tip down. So, you know, overextension isn't good. If you're too short, you know, head's going to be forward. You're going to end up having to put a lot of load on the tricep, bend the arm, compress the shoulder, and kind of get in there. A lot of times you can actually hold a little bit better if your draw length is shorter versus longer. So, um, and the reason I talk about this is because back in the day I went to um, a class with Bernie Pellierite and 
Um, I remember I went there with one of one of the best 3D shooters of all time. Um, his name was Randy Chapel, and Randy was struggling with his shooting. And this was about two years after he shot um, the perfectly clean IBO round, and. He was sitting there talking about that and Bernie just kept saying, well, you need to, you know, you need to steady up your aim. And kind of his little thing that he did in his class was he would just put lasers on everybody's bow and he would have people just point down range and just aim. And people would see their movement and everything like that. And then what he would do and like his way of fixing everybody is he just would shorten you way up. He would shorten up your draw length, and then all of a sudden he'd say, okay, now put the laser on. Let's see how steady you are. And you'd draw back, and all of a sudden you'd be like, holy crap, okay, the laser's barely moving. And that was like his his little thing that he would do to everybody. But the reality is, you know, Randy came out of there with like a two-inch shorter draw length, and I looked at him, I'm like, who cares how steady you are, dude? You can't pull through a shot. Like, all you can do now is aim and punch. That's all you can do. I'm like, that was, I felt like I was at some kind of a freaking carnival act. <laughs> I mean, there were valid points that were there, but when when he just started videoing everyone with the laser, and they'd be like, okay, I'm going to fix you. And he would just shorten everyone's draw length, and they would point the laser, and the laser would aim way better, and then they would kind of be sitting there and then all of a sudden now they're back in class the next year because they got target panic because they're having to punch the trigger because they can aim steady so there's a fine line there finding your draw length where you can still have your elbow up your release hand parallel to the to the front arm your your release forearm parallel to the front arm so that you can pull through and these lines are matching one another as you're coming through your shot now the other thing um, is um, another question that actually Bailey asked um, directly after this, but they are um, um, they're directly related. And she Bailey is saying how your knock height affects your holding, or even if I think that it does, and it absolutely does because. Your pull position on your string has a huge effect on your bow's aim, okay? Because technically, you've got a hold position, you've got a pull position. So your pull position in your relationship to your hand, whether it's way above the hand or below the hand, these positions here have an immediate effect on hold. So like I've talked about in the past, I've had times where I've built identical bows, identical draw lengths, identical poundages, but they feel like two different kids in the house, so to speak. And what I found out is when you really start measuring things down, what causes the biggest variation is when you're pulling relationship from where you're pulling on the string versus where your hand is naturally positioned in that riser, that has an effect and that's why sometimes you can notice that all of a sudden the bow just feels that much better even if you change the grip and it's not because necessarily how it's fitting your hand an example of this is like with the side plates so one thing that i like about the side plates that i'm having made is 
they actually, because there isn't a big uh, wooden handle on there, which actually, because of the spacing on the wooden grip, your hand is a little bit lower on the riser. I like these side plates that we're selling because it allows me to get my hand up closer to the riser and I have a better relationship with my pulling point and I feel like my bows just point so much better. So playing with that relationship and that's why if you do want to know, um, you can actually um, slightly adjust your tiller. Um, so if you take a full turn out of your top limb, what happens is you'll lower your knocking point so what you're focusing on, the thing is, if you lower your knocking point, you're going to change your tune a little bit. So you don't really want to focus on the tune. You may have to readjust that later, like you may have to move that arrow rest down or you may have to adjust your timing. But what you're doing by just taking that one turn off is saying, wait a minute, this bow does feel better here. What that's telling you is if your knocking point configuration was set up slightly lower on the overall string, then you may have a setup that points uh, just a little bit better. For those of you watching, um, they're getting ready to cut me off, so you'll have to hang tight and I'll be back here in a minute. So hang tight, everybody. Um, but yeah, that's really what you need to, uh, to think about is what does your pulling position, how does that relate to your setup? Some bows have, um, some bows actually have um, a kind of a grip position in the riser to where it's in the dead center of the riser. And then some bows have a position where the hand is actually below that center mark. And, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about that. I know Hoyt has gone back and forth several times about that relationship. You know, do you want your hand perfectly dead center in the riser, which is the way people used to really feel like that's where it needed to be back in the days of shooting a recurve bow. Um, a lot of the original recurves, the, the grip was in the dead center of the riser. And because of that, people had to shoot their arrow like super close to the bottom of the, of the shelf to get it to tune right. Um, and there was also back then there was also a lot more people doing tiller tuning to try to get their bow to point better um so i really feel like my personal opinion is and this kind of goes back to like one of one of the bows that kind of really changed the target game back in the day was the matthews conquest and that was one of the first bows that hit the target world where the grip was well below center. Now the problem with that is when you move the grip below center, the problem is you have a lot of weight above the hand so the bow kind of wants to tip and fall different directions. So there's pros and cons but those are the differences. So just letting everybody know. Um, okay, next question here is from Clay Anderson underscore 64. I'm shooting a caliper release and I seem to be chewing through D loops. Would that be my form or just a bad release? Most likely it could be two things. One, the type of material that's on your D loop. Some D loops actually, um, some materials um, perform differently. And what I mean by that is when you have a D loop, it has an inner core, which is a spun 
um, string of an inner core and then there's a braided or woven outer sleeve. Depending on the type of material, they have different characteristics. If you have a D-loop that's made out of spectra, those characteristics are a lot of times that string, when you pull on it, it'll stretch out and it'll elongate. And as it's coming through your, your caliper, it's, it's almost stretched itself thinner. And as it comes through, you know, it kind of has a different characteristic. The only problem with that is sometimes depending on your gapping in your caliper release, if you have like a specter type or specter base dilute material, um, it could sometimes pull through, um, which was a problem like with some of the very first um, true balls, some of the first true ball handheld releases they had a small gap the way their ball system worked which is what led to the creation of what we know now as polycord um, which originally was called chappy rope um, which was actually something that that randy chapel sunny chapel and myself um, worked together with with a company that was out in virginia that was actually making, um, they were actually making boat anchor rope. And we went to them and started telling them that this D-loop material, which back then all it was was Venetian blind cord. That's when people started shooting D-loops. A lot of us just use Venetian blind cord. So like when you buy a set of blinds at Walmart and it's got that excess length hanging off, that's what a lot of people used um, for D-loops. But we told them about the characteristics of it pulling through. So then that's when they said, you know, if you have something like like polyester, when it has pressure, it'll actually bunch up behind that. So like with the poly cords, when they go through and you pull on them, it'll actually bunch up behind the jaw of the release. So it almost makes it thicker, which prevented us from having D loops that would pull through the jaws. Um, which solved that problem. But in some releases, depending on the type of material you have, the jaws, either they open slow or they don't open wide enough to where, depending on the starting diameter of that polycord, if it creates a too big of a diameter when it has pressure on it, then it's almost too big and it'll start to contact the side of the release as it's coming out and that's what causes you to chew through it. Or some of them have the poly inner but they have the wrong outer sleeve and the outer sleeve starts to tear off. So I highly recommend, there's two different D-loop materials that I like. I like the poly um, which is made by BCY. We actually took that original I'm almost out of it. I had bought like a, a 5,000 yard spool of the original chappy rope. Um, and that rope we actually took to BCY and had them create that stuff, which is what poly is now. Um, D-Braid, which BCY makes, is actually um, a brand new version, an upgraded version of the Venetian blind cord type material, which is what Ulmer always loved. And I like too, but it was a little bit too small. So um, this is slightly thicker, but the D-Braid that BCY makes, that is a material that I helped do for them. 
um, that is really good. And it's called D-Braid. It was originally called Dudley Braid um, until some other professionals were said that they wouldn't shoot it because it had my name on there. So in order to, uh, for BCY, change it to D-Braid, and they started using it immediately. So, yeah, that's how fickle some people are. So um, that's the truth behind D-Loop materials. And I think if you find the right material, um, then you won't have that as bad if your release is good. But the other thing, too, is really check your release for burrs if you are a person who like say has an old scott caliper release or an old cobra caliper release and you used to shoot brass knocks a lot of people would clamp brass knocks under their under their arrow knock back in the day and because they were always pulling back and letting go of the regular serving with that brass knock on top it would it like chewed um a little like kind of a little rut onto the top of their aluminum release jaw and that little rut is what's you know a little bitty tick or a little teeny teeny burr can start to cause that wear and tear so check those things and uh you should be good to go uh let's see next question here is from eric fay saying practicing with two different releases thumb for practice and target and a wrist strap for hunting is this a good idea or a bad idea um i actually just had this conversation with a buddy of mine yesterday um, we were talking about another buddy of ours that um, shoots when they hunt, they want to shoot the knock to it, but then they want to shoot the silverback when they practice. But then when they're in camp and shooting just the knock to it, you can tell that they're not really shooting the knock to it the way that they shoot the silverback. They're kind of punching it, but just hide, trying to hide the punch. And the bottom line is if you're punching the release, regardless of what release you have you're going to have good days and bad days so if you can make good shots with your handheld release and in this instance you're talking depending on the type of handheld releases you're talking about um you know if both of the handheld releases are both triggers then i guess it's probably six of one half dozen of the other if one's a good tension activated release or a back tension release and the other one's a caliper then i would say man I'm telling you right now, when you get over that hurdle of not having to worry about what release you shoot in any application, then you're going to be happy. Um, I actually was going to shoot my deer in Oklahoma with um, the Too Smooth. That was originally my plan, but I gave it to Bailey, so... um, I didn't do that, but my plan is I'm still going to, I will, I will do a hunt and I may even do it live. I may do a live hunt with all of you and just, you guys are going to have to sit with me and stay quiet during prime time and see if I can do a live hunt and whack something with a too smooth for all of you. Um, but yeah, I just want to prove it doesn't matter what release is in your hand. What matters is the execution that you do with that release So be truthful to yourself, Eric, and ask yourself, what do I make my best shots with? And that's the one that you want to take out there. 
Um, let's see. Uh, Showtime underscore 99 underscore is asking, how do I get the upgraded parts for my Elevate Rest? So that's an awesome question. Um, so the Elevate Rest has made some big changes. There's new ones that are going to be showing up, and that's a big reason why I haven't pushed them. Um, we are actually waiting on some small screws. Um, the new ones are going to be um, coming in here. Uh, they're actually, I think they may ship from AAE to us um, this week. So probably by the end of next week or so, we're going to have the brand new, the new and improved Elevate 2.0s with the new cages, the octagon whale tail, um, all the above. So when that happens, um, you'll be able to get them from us if you're looking for a new rest, um, which will be perfect timing actually because new bows will be launching next week. Um, but if you have an existing Elevate Rest, just call um, just call AAE and um, just ask them. I'll talk to uh, I'll talk to Greg Poole and I'll talk to Nick and tell them that we might want to make just a little conversion, like maybe just a little package that has the new cage and uh, the new Octagon whale tail and things for people to do a little upgrade. And you'll have to have the new little screws that hold the cage on because it's it's slightly thicker and then also what i did um for those of you out there who are shooting i think it was the botex have a lot thicker riser block so on the botex when you slid it over um, the cage was a little bit closer to uh kind of your arrow position so i actually made a small shim block for the cage and it will come with two longer screws to where if you're shooting that bow, you can put this shim block in and then you'll actually move the cage to the outside of your riser shelf, uh, which I think people are gonna like as well. So that's all the kind of stuff when you come out with things. These are all the kind of things to where, you know, until you see the new bows that people bring out and you see the new bows that are on the, on the market and you actually screw them on until you do all that. Same thing with the limbs, you know, I ended up we had ended up having to make that new limb bracket, which now works on, you know, Matthews, Botex, and the new PSE limbs. It's the nice knock-on sandwich, but it's a little bit wider to fit those limbs. Um, all that stuff are things that you just have to do by by seeing what they come out with and making the changes as you go. Um, all right. Next question here is from TLC Outdoors. This is Keith Austin. And Keith is asking the question. I'm trying to look here. I've talked about I've talked about you in the past, for sure. You and you and Dean up there in Canada shooting together. So um, asking at a shoot like we have up here in Alberta called the Ironman, we shoot three alternating rounds of unmarked 3D and then three rounds of a Canadian 300 like the Vegas. How would you recommend setting up my two bows? Similar mass and sights, but um, should the arrow configurations be appropriate to the disciplines? Honestly, I talked about this yesterday in the podcast. Um, I really like my super drives for an all-around arrow. There's been times where I've gone places and I've shot 3Ds and indoor rounds at the same time. At that time, I shot Fat Boys, did just fine. The only things that I would change, I personally don't like to change my bow. And I think if you pick an arrow that allows you to do both, and you need to be honest with yourself, do you really feel 
like you can shoot a better indoor round just because you have say a 26 or 27 diameter i don't personally feel like i feel like my misses are bigger misses but let's just say that you did have one that worked good what would really be stopping you especially from those 3ds that i've shot up there those indoor 3ds you know once you've like gone to your first target you pretty much know what all the other ones are it's like as long as you've stepped off the back wall or the first pillar in there you can kind of figure the other stuff out so it's not like you're having to shoot a true unmarked Um, and a lot of you up there you guys are really good about judging so if anything um, for me personally the only change that I would be making would be on my aiming apparatus just because I would probably shoot my dot when it came to shooting on my Vegas face um, or on a Vegas face, I would shoot a dot on my lens. And then I may like to just have, um, depending on the lighting in there and the 3D, I may not even want a powered lens. I may just want um, a nice fiber optic up pin. So the only thing that I would really change would be my shooting apparatus, my aiming apparatus. But a lot of you 3D shooters and people that are really focused on 3D more than anything, your eyes have really come accustomed to looking at fibers all the time because that's what you like. And if that's what you like and you're used to aiming with that, then shoot the same thing on a Vegas face. But I would personally try to find something that allows you to kind of have both with the same arrow so you're not having to change as much. Um, next question here is going to be from the real Corey Ellis. This isn't a fake one, people. This isn't the Corey Ellis that didn't put the real in front. This is the real guy. This is him. Saying, budget tree stands or blinds for beginner whitetail hunters? Which would you prefer if you could only get one or the other? Um, so, and you're also asking about fall turkey hunting tactics fall turkey hunting tactics just figure out where the turkeys are going if they're going to fresh picked corn if they're going to beans whatever or figure out where their roost is and just get in that area a lot of times they'll go to the same spots to fly up every night um i actually was considering shooting a, a gobbler in oklahoma because these gobblers came to the exact same place in this field every single night um, before they flew up. And actually the one night where I was almost going to whack one is the night that I shot my buck. And that's what keeps me from shooting turkeys in the fall. I'll normally shoot them late morning, if anything, if they just happen to come by. But um, yeah, figure out their fly up area, figure out where they're flying up to roost from. And that would be an awesome place to set up in the evening. When it comes to one or the other, you know, that's a tough call. Um, I'm not a big pop-up blind person. Like, so if you need to be mobile, I would say get the tree stand. If you have one place that you hunt and you've got a food plot on there and you're going to just sit on that food plot and that's where you're going to be all the time, then I would say like a bale blind would be a great option for that. Um, but pop-up blinds at least where i'm from if you pop up a blind a lot of mature whitetail that unless you really spend a lot of time brushing them in um you just don't you just don't have them react to them but the bale blind they will 
And the other thing is the reason I like the bail blind setup that I posted on my Instagram is because you are elevated and I can at least see around. Um, the great thing about a tree stand is that you are in an elevated position and you can actually see around you and you can see movement happening. When you're in a pop-up blind, you're limited to a couple windows and most of the time, like right now, your neck, just my neck is stiff and necks get stiff from being in that same position all the time. So I think if you're in one position, you got one place you can hunt, look at one of the bail blinds. They're awesome. If you put it on a six foot deck, um, you can do it pretty cheap. All you need to do is buy some cheap uh, two by fours and buy two uh, eight foot four by fours and if you cut both those in half they'll give you your four legs it'll put you four foot off the ground um, a sheet and a half of plywood will get you a six foot deck and yeah that's pretty much that's it you'll you'll be able to put it up there and be a little bit elevated otherwise a good tree stand uh, is always hard to beat for a whitetail hunter um, let's see. Next question here is from, I think it's McEachel. I don't know, but saying, do you stand up in a tree before you're shooting or will you shoot them sitting down? So typically during prime time, um, like the first hour or so of daylight, I'm always standing up back to the tree. Um, last hour of daylight, I'm always standing up. I would say I stand up the majority of the time just so that I have the ability to move. Now, if I'm on a food plot, like last year when I shot the veteran buck, I was on a food plot. I was able to sit down. Literally, the way my stand was faced, I could shoot the entire green plot sitting. Um, and if I'm on a food plot, then I'll sit. But, um, you know, if you're if you're in timber and you're hunting timber stuff or ridges or um, transition areas, something where deer are like moving through and you may like just barely hear it and look and it's right there and you got to get up and then turn. In those situations, I'm standing a lot. So um, hopefully that helps you out. And last question here, people. This will be the last one. Um, this is coming from Plano Purist. Um so he's saying in a recent podcast, you talked about your preferences towards standard size lighted knocks as well as the influence that other arrow components and their tolerances have on your arrow selection. Um, are the walls too thin um, in some of the new nocturnal knocks that require bushings? Which arrow sizes would you avoid for this weak lighted knock reason? Can you elaborate on the influence in your selection from collars bushings knock options inserts etc this is a very detailed and lengthy question so i'm going to keep it fairly simple um, the new nocturnal knocks that have the strobes they actually come with small bushings that allow you to have one size knock and it allows it really allows dealers and consumers to to buy one pack of lighted knocks and then there's press fit bushings that you push in your arrow and then you put the knock into that um, so that you're able to take one lighted knock which I think the standard if you don't use the bushing you should be able to push it into an X configuration I believe but like if you need an S or an H you'll have to use one of the bushings um, so or I think if you have like a gold tip arrow 
those bushings are actually a good idea and the tolerances are tight on them. Um, what you'll want to do though is you'll want to make sure you press the black bushing in the back of the shaft first. Then take your knock and put some wax on that knock as you twist it in because you'll find that they're extremely tight. In some cases they're actually tighter than uh, the tolerances on the factory ones. Um, so I don't know. I I personally feel like um, those are are good. The material itself of the new knock um, nocturnal has learned as well um, over the years with different things. The actual plastic itself, um, like this year, if you take a nocturnal knock and you flex it compared to one um, that might be older on the shelf, you'll find that they are much stiffer. Um, it is, and you can even tell the color of the plastic um, is is different. The other thing too is there was some like ripoffs on eBay and stuff and Amazon for companies that were ripping off um, Nocturnal. Same thing. There's a company. There's a company in China that are ripping off several things. Nocturnal knocks. There's some Rage broadheads that were being knocked off. I know that. Um, there were trophy taker rests that were being knocked off. I'm trying to think what else. There was there were several different products. Actually, Hoyt bows. Um, you can, but you don't want it. I'm just telling you, you don't want it. But they've kind of just completely cookie cuttered um, one of the Hoyt elements, and it was like 200 bucks. But from <laughs> from the catastrophes I've seen, um, it save yourself the the um copay <laughs> for when that riser limb bolt breaks in half um so you got to be careful if you you know make sure you're buying the real deal there's a lot of duplications like ripping these companies off and a lot of times it's so much money for for you legally to track these companies down and it gets really really hard um so you know, take a look when you go in the shops. Um, it's always good if, like, especially if you're buying lighted knocks or things like that. If, if your shop says, "Yeah, I just got them in," if there's like a bunch of old dust on their packaging, like that, that might be the time where you kind of look at it and see if it's new or old. Um, but you'll see the new clear plastic is a lot stiffer. The old, real foggy plastic. Um, it was like almost like. I shouldn't say foggy, but it was like it wasn't clear. It was almost like looked like um, looked more like ice. You could just grab it and it could flex more. Um, and that stuff, that's just stuff that you know you try a different material and you don't realize. But I'm just being honest with you. Um, the knocks that I don't prefer are in in the lighted knocks, and it doesn't matter what brand lighted knock. The smaller ones like the G's. Um, because of that, just the how thin that wall of the actual knock has to be to fit that battery pack in there, regardless of the pack, um, it's just not my favorite. So that's uh, that's that. I guess if I were to pick one, that's the one I would say. So uh, yeah, I've got to um, I've got to actually get to town. I've got a meeting with a really good friend that um, that's flew in here. And I want to be able to go and say hi and all that good stuff. So um, I'm going to get out of here. But I appreciate everyone tuning in to another Knock On podcast and all that good stuff. And uh, 
yeah, thanks for always giving me good things to talk about because I take so much of this for granted and appreciate all of you. Hopefully more of you get your first 300 round here coming up for sure. Talk at you later. Knock on everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.